Welcome to the pen and the yad. This week's Torah portion is Chaye Sarah. Rabbi Michael Siegel of Anshayim at Synagogue in Chicago talks with author Jonathan Eig on how death becomes us. What's your first memory of death? In your life, can you remember the first time you thought about death? Oh, yeah, I sure can, because I was five years old when my grandfather died. He was a victim of a hit-and-run oh, car accident. And um, my mom was um, pregnant with her third son, and I remember asking my grandmother, what happened to Grandpa? Where is he? I called him Poppy, Poppy Lou. And um, she told me that he went ice skating and fell through the ice. I guess so she she couldn't deal with telling me the the the, the grim sad truth. Um, I don't know why she decided that falling through the ice while ice skating was less horrifying for a child to hear because that was pretty horrifying for me. But I think it was, the, it was just the idea that she was having a hard time figuring out herself, you know, how to explain this to a to a child. And for me, that made a very confusing start to learning to deal with uh with with death especially for you know a kid who's five to to lose a grandpa who he loved i don't know how how i should have dealt with it do you remember processing that information about falling through the ice or how you responded to that i just remember confusion i just remember that i didn't know why he was here one day and not there the next my first memory of death is different my great-grandfather died died of natural causes thankfully and I remember going to the funeral, and for whatever reason, I have no idea why this was done, his casket was open, and he was embalmed. And there he was. So I'm walking through this line, and I look over at this box, and suddenly I'm looking at my great-grandfather. His name was Nathan Warnkoff. And I'm looking at him. I, I can remember how startled I was then to this very day. It was shocking. Uh, there was no conversation about death. There was no preparation for death. We went to a funeral. I have obviously no memory of the eulogy. And I remember going to a shiva house and playing with my cousins. That's my total first memory is that shock and that visual. I wonder, Jonathan, how our children deal with death. How how well prepared are they to even think about death in our society? That's a really good question. I think there's a tendency for all of us to try to avoid the subject. It's It's difficult. And you know, look, everybody dies. I, you know, it's, it's something we should all be comfortable with, something we should accept as part of our lives, but it's easier not to talk about it. And I suspect that uh, most of us avoid it. I know that even adults, my dad's sister passed away recently and he didn't want to talk about it at all. He was, um, he still hasn't talked about it. I asked him how he's coping with it. And he said, I went out and cut down a tree and that's <laughs> all he would say. Yeah. We kind of take our energies and put them somewhere else. I've, I've done a number of funerals where the funeral was in the morning and one of the direct mourners, a child, uh, went right back to work. The reality, of course, is is that it's going to catch up with you and we, we're going to need to focus on it. But I think you're quite right also that as Americans, we don't really have rituals of death. I was talking to a friend of mine recently and he mentioned to me that they were going to see his sister-in-law. They were in Chicago for some reason. And I said, what's she doing with herself? I remember her. And she says, you know what she does? She makes caskets. She's an artist and she makes these stylized caskets where you can get like a Grateful Dead casket. So you're expressing your individuality. So we're focusing now on the trappings of death, but not on death itself. And What's so interesting is that in our portion, 
The first Jewish person to die is Sarah. And Abraham comes down the mountain, and, and that's the chronology of the Torah. Abraham comes back after this victory with God, and Isaac is saved, and Sarah dies. And the rabbis actually make a connection that Satan came to Sarah. Satan is not like the devil and the exorcist, but Satan is a messenger of God who's always creating havoc or creating difficult questions. And he goes to her and says, hey, do you know where Abraham is? He says, you know, I actually don't know where, do you know where Isaac is. And he tells her and she immediately dies, thinking that her husband's going to slaughter her son. But regardless, there's this juxtaposition between the greatest moment in Abraham's life and then this very difficult moment. So the last week's portion of Vayera ends on this very high note that Abraham is in the land of what was then Canaan at the time, and everything is all about the future. And then, as this week's portion opens, Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, she dies. And Abraham is suddenly thrust back into reality. And what does he have to do? He has to negotiate with the sons of Chet, the B'nai Chet, because he needs a place to bury his wife. And Abraham, as we've talked about, is a man of significant means. He also fields his own army. He's basically a very powerful chieftain. So when he asks to buy something, you have to take it seriously. And they don't want to sell it to him. They don't want him to have a foothold in this land. They say they're gonna, they're going to give it to him. He doesn't want it. He wants to purchase that land. And we see Abraham prepare his wife for burial. We see him take 30 days to mourn. And you start to see that these are the signposts of what become the Jewish rites of mourning. So you have what we would call kavod hamate the honor of the dead by the way that he treats her and finding a respectable burial place. And then you have this whole notion of how you mourn her. It's very ritualized. And that idea becomes part and parcel of the Jewish approach to mourning. And I, for one, think that there's a lot to that. I think that we deprive our children of the necessity for dealing with death when we don't teach them about these mourning rituals. I don't know what your thoughts are, but I think it's important. Yeah, there's no question that the ritual is not a gimmick for the burial industry. I think there's a lot of reasons to do it. And I think obviously a lot of different cultures and a lot of different religions have their own rituals and they're, they're often really elaborate. First of all, it helps just to have some structure. And gosh, I mean, if anybody knows that, it's you because you've guided so many families through this process. But I think feeling like there is a process, feeling like there are, are traditions to be followed, uh, just helps give some order in a time of chaos. You know, your mind tends to reel. How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to go on without this person? What does their life mean? It helps to have some structure around it. And I think that's especially true for younger folks who are confused about what it means for someone to be here one day and then gone the next. Well, there's nothing more destabilizing than death. It's an irrational idea. How did this happen? How is it that some a person who I've known since I was born, is no longer here. I can't talk to them. I can't go and see them. I can't connect to them. And suddenly they're, they're physically no longer with us. So that, that already is destabilizing. You're quite right that the rituals of mourning create structure in our lives, kind of force us to take action, to bury the dead and all the rest. But I also wanted to mention that there is 
an old tradition amongst the Jewish people of having what we call a Hevra Kedisha, that is a burial society, a holiness society. And they prepare people for burial. And Anshiamit, by the way, has a very fine Hevra Kedisha. And these people in our congregation, and they usually are anonymous because not everybody's comfortable knowing who prepared their husband or wife for burial, but men prepare men, women prepare women, and they wash the body, they say the prayers. And what's really fascinating about it is that when the burial society begins the ritual, they speak, they literally speak to the person who has died. And they apologize for any improprieties, lack of modesty, things of that nature as they wash the body. And that experience forces them not to look at the dead as a cadaver, but as a human being who is, in a sense, still with us. And I think that that really forces us to kind of come to terms with the reality of death and the sacredness of life. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I love the idea that you're helping a family get through this process and you're treating the departed as if they are still somebody. And they are because their memories never die and they live on within us. And uh, that's a really nice way to start that process, I think. I spend a lot of time thinking about that when I think about my grandfather who did not fall through the ice, who died when I was only five. Those memories that I have, even though there are there are very few of them because I was only five, the memories that I have of him when he was alive are, are so special to me. You know, I cling to them like jewels. I think about the power of the people that we live with, but I also think of the psychological need to deal with death. If you think about it, death is very much part of life in the Jewish tradition. So, for instance... People come together and it's not uh, unusual for you to be in a service and come to the mourner's Kaddish and someone is standing up, maybe in the same row, maybe behind you, saying Kaddish. And so you're used to seeing people offering public displays of mourning. It's really just part of that. It's probably we read a, a list of names. We remember them. And so it's not as though we're avoiding death, but we're in a sense folding the awareness of death into our everyday moments of life. Yeah, I think there's great comfort in that, knowing that, that it is part of the of the tradition. There's certainly no avoiding it. You might as well think about it and and think about how you can help those who are who are grieving. I love that idea. I love what you just said because how often do you hear people say when they're when they hear of someone's death, they'll go up to the person, the the mourner, and they'll say, I don't know what to say. And they'll change the subject. You can be in a house of mourning and they'll start suddenly talking about the Cubs or the market or something else. Their discomfort kind of robs the mourner of the opportunity to be a mourner. So you're taking them out of that space. And what's so interesting about the laws of mourning is that you're supposed to sit with somebody, sit with the mourner when you go to a shiva house and literally sit with them for three minutes. Not saying anything and waiting for them to respond to you and to say something to you. And if they don't talk to you, you can at the end, you say this formula. Hamakom yinachem etchem betoch sha'ar avelezion virushalayim. May God grant you comfort along with those who mourn in Zion and Yerushalayim. And there's two things about that that I want to underscore. One is that the name of, for God in this in this formula is makom. What, makom means the place, hamakom. And so what you're saying is, may the place grant you comfort. And what I've always interpreted that to mean is that 
God comforts us when we comfort each other. The place where a person is, if that, if the people in that place are not attending to the mourner, then we're failing them. And God can't be present with that person if others aren't going to be, if the community is not present. So we make it possible to be part of that moment, to, to be, and to allow God to be part of that moment. I think it's a very powerful idea that God is, in a sense, dependent on us to comfort the mourner so that God can comfort the mourner. Yeah, I really, I really love that. And I think you can feel that spirit when someone is sitting Shiva and you see the community coming around them and, and the fact that it's, it's not just a one time deal. You do it over and over until it starts to feel natural and normal until it starts to feel like part of your life. And it is, uh, it should be. That idea that shift is exhausting. Every night people are coming, you're telling stories and that's emotionally exhausting. But it's so important that we take the time to mourn. And that's what Abraham teaches us in what I think is just a powerful portion, that death is part of life and we have to face both. And in a sense, when we allow ourselves to acknowledge death, it makes us appreciate life that much more. Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs>